Last week, we read that after Jesus had spoken the kingdom parables to the large crowd that had gathered there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that his disciples then came to him in private and asked him why he spoke to the crowds in these parables and these veiled, enigmatic statements rather than in plain, direct speech. Jesus responded in chapter 4 and verse 11 by saying, to you, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that, and he quotes here from Isaiah 6, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. He then proceeded in the verses that follows to explain to his disciples in private, in detail, the meaning of the parable of the sower. So the secret, the word Mark uses is mystery, musterion in the Greek. The secret of the kingdom was veiled in parables and it was concealed from the unbelieving crowds. But the mysteries of the kingdom were revealed to the disciples and so they received the explanations to all of these parables in private. Well, a similar statement appears at the end of today's passage. After the last of the kingdom parables recorded by Mark, in verse 33, Mark reports that with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them, that is to the crowds, without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. All right, so Mark tells us in verses 33 and 34 two important things. Number one, Jesus spoke a number of parables and only four of them are recorded by Mark. So this is just a small collection of the parables that Jesus spoke to the crowds. And number two, everything that Jesus spoke in parables to the crowds, he explained in private to the disciples. But for whatever reason, Mark has chosen not to record Jesus' explanation of the last three parables in Mark 4, the parables that we will cover today, the hidden lamp, the growing seed, and the mustard seed. He doesn't record Jesus' explanations, although he tells us that Jesus indeed explained them. And the question I want to ask is why? Why does Mark record Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower, but not his explanations of these last three parables? And I suspect the answer is that Mark and the Holy Spirit through him wants the parables to have the same effect upon us today as they had upon the crowds there by the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the parables either concealed or revealed the mysteries of the kingdom, depending on whether or not you have ears to hear. But if Mark were to record every one of the explanations to every parable, the parables would cease to have that dual function. They would simply be direct speech, illustrations with explanations. And they would not serve Jesus' purpose stated in verse 11, to separate his own disciples from those who are outside. In other words, Mark wants us this morning 
to hear the parables as the crowd did. So this morning, we're not as Jesus' disciples gathered inside the house listening to Jesus explain the parable of the sower. Now, we're in the position of the crowds there by the Sea of Galilee just hearing these parables as they come. And in so doing, I think that Mark wants us to be struck by Jesus' admonition to pay attention to what you hear, to work, to dig, to mine out the mystery of the kingdom like a diamond within and so prove to be his disciples. And that is our aim this morning. We're going to expound the meaning of these three parables of the kingdom We're going to expose the mysteries of the kingdom concealed therein, and Lord willing, we're going to let our faith be strengthened by what we find. So there is opportunity this morning for biblical assurance. There is opportunity for a well-grounded confidence that you are truly a disciple of Christ, that you are among those to whom it has been granted to have ears to hear, that you are among those to whom the mysteries of the kingdom have been revealed. So I want you to put yourself in the situation and in the setting of the crowd, there by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is, a, is out on a boat. He's back away from the shores a little bit, and he's speaking to this massive crowd outlining the shoreline, and he says this. He says this to them, and he says this to you this morning. Pay attention to what you hear. Okay, First Baptist Nixa, pay attention this morning to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the Holy Spirit, through Mark, is placing you this morning on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, listening to this mysterious, wonderful, enigmatic rabbi speak mysterious, wonderful, enigmatic words, bidding you to pay attention to what you hear as if there lies within his words some secret, some key to the kingdom that will allow you to unlock its gates and enter in. And that's exactly what is happening through these parables. If you hear it, If you have ears to hear, the gates of the kingdom will open wide for you this morning. Listen to James Edwards on this note. He says, quote, Those to whom the mystery of the kingdom of God is given in Jesus will receive even greater capacity to enter it. I take that to mean even greater confidence that you are in Christ. On the other hand, those who fail to receive the mystery of Jesus will discover that even what he has will be taken from him. Jesus will just become to you even more mysterious, even more confusing, and even more irrelevant. Understanding the kingdom of God, then, is not a human ability, but a capacity created by Jesus Christ within the heart of the believer. So, If you can understand these parables this morning, now here's what I mean by that. 
I do not mean that you can understand the words that I am speaking. You can comprehend the meaning of what I say. I mean understanding in the biblical sense. If they ring true in your ears, if they shine with radiance in your eyes, if they burn with passion in your heart, if there is within your soul something that says, yes, amen, I know this, I believe this, I love this, then to you the mysteries of the kingdom have been granted. You have ears to hear, and the kingdom of God is your inheritance. So test yourself this morning. To some who are here, let me give this warning. This morning, I am going to unveil the kingdom ever so briefly and show you three mysteries from three parables. If you fail to hear them, if you fail to see them, if you fail to feel them, and if you turn away from them, even what you have will be taken away from you. So take heed to how you hear this morning. A parable is a powerful and precious thing. The secret to the kingdom of heaven lies in Mark 4. So the first parable, the parable of the hidden lamp, is where we will begin to unpack this morning. It is found for us in verses 21 to 23. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Mysterious words. What do they mean? Well, in order to unearth the mystery that is hidden in this parable, We need to start by translating verse 21 more accurately than it comes to us in the ESV. Now, I'm a fan of the ESV, but it does us no favors here. The ESV in verse 21 reads, notice carefully, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? That's not what the Greek text says. The Greek text literally says, Does the lamp come in order to be put under a basket? Now, what's the difference? Does the lamp come in order to be put under a basket? Well, the presence of the definite article, the, means that Jesus is referring not just to any lamp, but to a specific lamp, the lamp. And the lamp, according to Jesus, is not brought in passive tense, voice, but it comes, active voice. So the lamp is the subject of the verb, not its object. But it's strange to speak of a lamp coming. Lamps are inanimate objects. They don't come or go anywhere. They're brought, right? Unless the lamp is referring to a person. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. I think the lamp refers to Jesus himself. I think Jesus is the hidden lamp. I think he's the hidden light that came into the world. And I think the mystery of the kingdom is unfolded in understanding that. How was his light hidden? 
Well, Jesus' light was hidden in his incarnation. It was hidden in his humility. It was hidden in his meekness. It was hidden beneath his flesh. The Son of God who called the cosmos into existence and who upholds it by the word of his power was hidden, as it were, behind a veil of ordinary Galilean humanity. The lamp was hidden beneath the basket. It was hidden under the bed. He was not on a lampstand for all to see in the days of his earthly ministry. Not yet, anyway. And this very fact was a stumbling block for so many in his day. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1.5 He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Why? Because the light was hidden under a basket. It was hidden under a bed. I want you to go ahead and look with me at Mark 6.2. Just turn over a few chapters. I want to show you what this looks like. What does it look like for the light to be hidden under a basket? Well, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in Nazareth. He's in his hometown. And on the Sabbath, he preaches in the synagogue. And the people there who are listening to him speak cannot reconcile what they're hearing with the man that they know. Verse 2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And look at the next line. And they took offense. At him. The divine light of Jesus standing before them in the synagogue at Nazareth was hidden beneath his ordinary Galilean humanity, and the people could not see his glory. And that happened over and over and over again in the days of his earthly ministry. But there was a time when the veil of his flesh was removed, when the lamp was brought out from underneath the basket and its light shone with brilliance and divine glory. Mark records that event in chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew adds the detail that his face shone like the sun. For a brief moment there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the basket was removed and the light of the lamp shone with all of its radiance and all of its glory But soon it was over. The lamp went back underneath its basket. The divine Christ went back within his veil of humanity, the veil of his flesh, and Jesus once again looked like an ordinary Galilean carpenter. Even in the glory of his resurrection, Jesus was seen by relatively few. And so it remains today. The people of this world this morning are shaking their heads in pity at you. As you sing praise to a Savior you've never seen, whose voice you've never heard. 
Those poor, misguided, feeble-minded simpletons singing songs and praying prayers to a God who is not there. And they say that because the lamp is still underneath its basket. But not for long. That's what Jesus says. Lamps don't come in order to stay under baskets. Lamps don't come in order to stay under beds. They come to be placed up on stands. And there is coming a day when the lamp will be placed up on the lampstand where he belongs. There is coming a day when the light that shone to the few atop the mountain will be seen by all. There is coming a day when the king will come into his throne. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes will wail on account of him. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war, and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written which no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The lamp does not come in order to be put under a basket. He comes to be put on a stand. He comes to be put on display so that his glory would be seen by all. And there will come a day when that glory is made manifest. And there will come a day where this secret is brought to light. But why then? If a lamp does not come in order to be put under a basket, why then did Jesus come and veil his glory in ordinary humanity? Furthermore, Even in the glory of his resurrection, why does he remain hidden? Why does his light remain veiled during this age as he reigns in glory in an invisible heaven? Why not come and immediately be put on a lampstand so that all may see the light and bow before him? Here's the answer. And here's the mystery to the kingdom. So that entrance to the kingdom would not be by sight, but by faith. And faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Hence, verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. The king has determined that entrance into the everlasting kingdom would come by faith, which comes by hearing and not by sight, which comes by seeing. And that is why the message of the kingdom came in parables. The parables are the basket beneath which the lamp is hidden. But, if you can see the light of the lamp shining out from beneath the basket, blessed are you. 
Now pay attention to what you see and hear, and more will be given to you. Pay attention to what you see and hear, and more and more divine light will be revealed to you. More and more of Christ will be revealed to your eyes and to your heart. So what is the mystery of the kingdom which is concealed in the parable of the hidden lamp? It is this. Jesus is the lamp, the light of the world, that now is hidden, but soon will be revealed. Therefore, hear his word, see his glory, believe, and enter his kingdom. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The next parable is the parable of the growing seed. This parable is found only in Mark's gospel, and it begins at verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. All right, the mystery of the kingdom hidden in the second parable, I think, will become clear if we make three observations. Let me point them out to you, and then we'll, we'll unfold those. Number one, notice, observe, that all the man does in this parable is scatter seed on the ground. That's all he does. He sows the seed, and then he goes about his life, sleeping and rising night and day. Second observation. The seed sprouts and grows within the earth by some mysterious power, completely apart from the man's activity. Now, you remember that Jesus is speaking to a pre-scientific audience, parentheses. Pre-scientific does not mean dumb. I could make a very strong case that these people are far more intelligent than we are. It's just that they had not yet discovered the mechanics of cellular development and seed germination and photosynthesis. And so Jesus doesn't address them on that level. All they knew was that you put seed in the ground, add sunlight and water, and the seed grows of itself into a mature stalk and grain. The word there Mark uses is automate, automatically. It just happens automatically. Third, observe that the grain grows slowly, almost imperceptibly. But by the time of the harvest, it is ripe. You cannot watch plants grow, but nevertheless, they grow. Surely, slowly, but steadily. All right? Those are the three observations from this parable. Now, what do they mean? Well, this parable, much like the parable of the sower, is about how a person is saved and comes into the kingdom. Whereas the parable of the sower highlighted the different types of hearing which the gospel of the kingdom will find amongst the world, different types of soils, some hard, some rocky, some thorny, the parable of the growing seed focuses just upon the fourth soil, the receptive soil. The man who sows the seed is the same, though. It's the evangelist. 
It's Jesus' disciples. It is you. Anytime you speak the gospel, you're the sower scattering seed on the ground. The seed which the evangelist sows is the word of Christ. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus and of his kingdom. The stalk of grain which results are people growing and bearing fruit for the harvest, and the harvest is the end of the age. Now, let's return to our three observations and unveil the mystery concealed in this parable. Remember, observation number one, all the man does is scatter seed on the ground. Then he goes to sleep. That's all he does. So observation number one, the kingdom of God grows by the sowing of the word of God, which is the responsibility of Jesus' disciples, the church. That is your calling. Your calling as a disciple of Jesus is to scatter seed. Your calling is to speak the word of the gospel. That is it. You are not called to produce a harvest. You do not possess the power of germination. Regeneration. You can speak the word, but you can't cause people to be born again. But seeds cannot germinate unless they are sown in the ground, and neither can people be born again unless they hear the gospel, and how will they hear unless you speak? You are called to sow the seed in the ministry field which God has given you. And if you are doing that, you are being faithful. So ask yourself, where is my ministry field that God has given me to sow seed? Where is that? Let me name some places. Your home. Parents, your home is your ministry field. Sow the seed there. Your work is your ministry field. Sow the seed there. Students, your school is your ministry field. Sow the seed there. We still have spots open, and there is still time for you to sign up to go to Cuba. Maybe that's a ministry field where Jesus is calling you. We're going to Haiti this summer. Maybe that's a ministry field where you can go and scatter seed. But scatter seed, you must. That's what disciples do. And that's how the kingdom of God grows. That's how churches grow. They grow as the members sow their fields with the seeds of the gospel. If you want to know how First Baptist Nixa is going to grow, it is not through some crazy, awesome idea that we come up with on a Tuesday afternoon after we've been tossing around bad ideas for an hour and a half, right? The growth of this church is not going to come through some awesome idea that just springs up in our mind. It's not going to come through any program at all. It's not mysterious. It happens as you and I sow seeds. That's observation number one. Number two, what happens when the seed is sown? Well, the seed sprouts and it grows by some mysterious power completely apart from our activity. 
It's what the parable says. Seed germination was a mystery to the first century world. All they knew was that you, you put the seed in the ground and some of those seeds came to life, sprouted shoots, and began to grow. Jesus says they know not how. Even so, regeneration is a mystery to us. We know that it is the activity of the Holy Spirit in taking the seed of the gospel that we've sown in the soil of a person's heart and causing it to germinate and causing it to come to light and causing it to, to sprout and to grow, but we don't know exactly how that happens. We know, however, that regeneration does not happen apart from sowing the word, and yet we know that sowing the word does not cause it to happen because not everywhere we sow the word do people come to life. So it can be said about us the same thing that was said in the parable. We sow the seed, and then we go and we sleep, and as we sleep, it sprouts and grows. We know not how. I think this point has a couple of implications for our evangelism, whether we are here at home or on the mission field. Let me mention a couple of them. Number one, it means that we cannot manufacture conversions, and we shouldn't try. We cannot make the dead come to life. We cannot make the seed germinate and sprout and begin to grow. No amount of human ingenuity or emotional manipulation or psychological pressure can ever bring someone to true conversion. The difference between someone being saved and lost has nothing to do with the level to which our lights are dimmed or the volume of the music or how many times we sing this song or how many times we sing that song has nothing to do with that. That's why I oppose the use of altar calls, if you're wondering, and why I'm hesitant about feeding someone's words in a sinner's prayer. We cannot cause the seed to germinate. And there is too much danger, if we do so, of producing weeds that merely look like wheat. Implication number two, it also means that a person's rejection of the gospel message that you speak is not a failure on your part. Do not give in to the temptation to believe that if only you had been more eloquent, more persuasive, less fumbling in your presentation that the person you shared with would have been saved. I had a lady, her name was Joanne, she was a sweet Dear woman at my church up in Buffalo, and she was a godly lady. thing I remember most about her is at the end of every service, she would make her way, which was she, she sat in the back and she would come up all the way to the front, and that was quite a journey for her because she was not in good health. What she would do, I would leave my sermon manuscript on the pulpit there, and she would come up and very quietly, she didn't like to be noticed by anyone, she would take it off and she would take it home, and she would mark the whole thing up and reread it over and over again that week. It was this truth that set her free from horrific guilt. She wrote me a card in about my third or fourth year of ministry there telling me how she had suffered for guilt for years because when her son-in-law had died and by committing suicide, she had thought that he had, he had rejected the gospel because she just hadn't shared it well enough. And now he's in hell because she stumbled in her gospel presentation. That was a burden she was never intended to bear. 
She sowed the seed, and she should have gone home and slept well. Far more important than how the seed was thrown is that the seed was thrown. Failure in sowing the seed is an impossibility. As soon as the seed leaves the hand, the work of the sower is done, and it has been done well. Third observation, the seed sown in good soil which germinates and comes to life, it grows slowly yet steadily until the time of the harvest. In other words, every truly converted believer grows and bears fruit, every one of them, without exception. But that growth is often unobservable except over long periods of time. If you were to set a camera on a wheat field and run it from the time of sowing to the time of reaping, that would be one long, boring film. You would get tired, you would get frustrated, and you would turn it off before you saw anything resembling growth, and you would probably get the idea that it just didn't work. But if you were to take snapshots every, every week or so for the, for the six months between sowing and reaping, and then you were to lay them out side by side, you would see dramatic growth. And the same principle holds true in the Christian life. Some of you here are very frustrated and very concerned because you feel stagnant in your Christian life. You are in a period in which you feel like you are making no forward progress. Your affections are cold. Um, your, Your obedience is stumbling and hindered. And you're discouraged because you keep You keep wrestling with the same sin, and you're not seeing any observable growth in grace. Listen to me. You should not compare yourself by today, or last week, or last year. Christian growth is best seen, I think, in five-year increments. So just like the wheat stalk... If you're trying to gain a well-grounded confidence that you are in Christ, you understand that every good seed grows and bears fruit. You understand that. That's clear from the Bible. But you want to know if you're growing and bearing fruit. You need to take some longer snapshots. You may not be further along in your Christian walk or may not appear further along in your Christian walk than you were at this time last year. But if you look back five years ago, you ought to be able to say, by God's grace, I'm not the same man I was five years ago. Five years from now, I won't be the same man that I am today. Christian growth is slow, imperceptible, yet steady. And come harvest time, you will be amazed at what the Lord has done by His grace and power because you will produce an abundant yield. So what is the mystery of the kingdom concealed in this second parable, the parable of the growing seed? It is this. Only righteous, that is fruit-bearing Christians, will inherit the kingdom. You don't bear fruit, you're not getting in. But, 
The righteous do not start that way. It begins with someone sowing the seed of the gospel into the soil of the heart. And then by some mysterious, sovereign power, that seed germinates, regeneration takes place, and a plant that is a righteous man begins to grow. But growth is slow, and it's imperceptible. But it is sure, and it is steady. And come harvest time, there will be an abundant crop. Therefore, do not be disheartened or discouraged, either in your evangelism or in your Christian discipleship. There will be a rich harvest, of that you can be sure. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The third parable of the kingdom is the parable of the mustard seed, and it's found beginning in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is grown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, whereas the parable of the sower and the parable of the growing seed focused upon individual salvation, right, the germination and the growth of an individual into a fruit-bearing Christian, which at the harvest time will be reaped and gathered into the barn of God's everlasting kingdom. The parable of the mustard seed focuses upon the corporate growth of the church as a whole. Now, Jesus' parable has caught some flack through the years from those who have no ear for figurative language. Nobody likes those kind of people. No, the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yes, there are seeds which are smaller. If that's your concern, you've entirely missed the point. The point is, is that it was well known in Palestine where Jesus taught that mustard seeds are tiny, yet they stand for something that will grow disproportionately large. When full-grown, a mustard plant may reach a height of upwards of 8 to 10 feet by the shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was presently telling this parable. It's quite possible he could have pointed when he was telling this parable. The reason Jesus used the mustard seed is that it was familiar to his audience and it was famous for the contrast between the tiny size of the seed and the relatively enormous size of the mature shrub, which grew large enough to attract nesting birds. So what is the mystery of the kingdom concealed in this parable? Well, the mustard seed represents the kingdom of God. That's not the mystery. That much is plain from Jesus' words. No, the mystery is that the church which Jesus was planting with his small band of followers, is the kingdom of God on the earth. That was shocking. Not to us. Today, we look at that small band of followers and we're like, of course, that's how it all started. You would have never guessed that in the day when Jesus spoke this. The church's beginnings were small and weak and inauspicious. Think about it. You had a Galilean carpenter with no formal theological education. You had a group of Galilean fishermen. You had a tax collector. You had a uh, political zealot, an anarchist. 
you had a Judean trader who was a thief, and you had a handful of others that we don't know much about. None of them were highly educated or particularly connected with the religious or political elite. Uh, They were not much to speak of. They were just a seed. But that seed was planted in the ground. Christ died and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand. And on Pentecost, 120 believers were gathered together in one place and life happened. The Holy Spirit came down, the seed of the church germinated, and the church was born. By the end of the day, 3,000 had been added to the church, Acts 2.41. Soon that number was 5,000, Acts 4.4, and it just kept growing, and it just kept spreading, just like Jesus promised it would. And now, some 2,000 years later, its branches reach all around the world to nearly every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The point is that Jesus was absolutely confident that the church would grow incredibly, surprisingly, far beyond its humble, tiny origins. He was absolutely confident of its success. In fact, he died and he rose again in order to make the success of the church certain. The church is an unstoppable force in the world. Jesus has seen to that. He is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, to the church, I say, don't be discouraged. You are, we are, a part of that mustard plant that is growing and is massive, and will continue to grow and expand until the time of the harvest comes. It's growing into the largest plant in the garden, and nothing, absolutely nothing can stall its triumph. Remember that when you go on mission trips, and remember that when you walk across the street. You are not small and insignificant and despised as you feel as you are in the eyes of the world. To the unbeliever here, today I urge you and I plead with you on the basis of this parable, do not be on the wrong side of history. The mustard plant, the church, is taking over the garden, the world. And it alone will remain when everything else is burned away. So if you're here and you're not a part of the plant, if you're not a part of the church, Join us. Come nest in its glorious shade. You're the bird in this parable. The church's branches are strong enough to support you. Come rest in the shade of the church. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there are three mysteries of the kingdom which are concealed in these three parables. Let's roll through them very quickly. Number one, Jesus is the lamp. His light is now hidden. Soon it will be revealed and it will be placed up on the lampstand for all to see when Jesus comes in his glory and sets up his glorious throne. Number two, people enter the kingdom when the seed of the gospel is scattered. The mysterious power of the Holy Spirit causes it to germinate and it grows into a mature stalk 
fruit bearing, ripe for the harvest. Number three, the church, though small and humble in its beginnings, is growing to massive worldwide proportions. It is an unstoppable church, its triumph is certain, and it will give rest to all who nest in its branches. These are the mysteries of the kingdom. Not everyone can understand them, only those with ears to hear. So the question is, do you hear? Do you understand? Do you feel? Take heed this morning to how you hear, because to the one who has, to the one who hears and understands and feels and responds in faith, more will be given. But to the one who has not, the one who does not hear, does not understand, does not care, even what he has will be taken away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 